Welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants. I'm here with my friends, Kyle and Natalie. Welcome. Hey, Raph. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Raph. Hey, Nat. So uh, today we're going to have a chat about something which was proposed by Kyle, and I think it's a fascinating topic, which is do no harm. Is that is that what we want to talk about, do no harm, or is it more about code of conduct? I think it's about do no harm, and then everything else can potentially fall out from underneath that category. Okay. So um, set this up for us, Kyle. Okay. So... Nat and I were having a fun side conversation a few months ago about um, what it really means when, or what does it really mean when we say something like do no harm. And the reason that this came up is because for the Pilates Method Alliance, that is the first thing at the top of our code of ethics. Um, Meaning uh, as a professional standard, it is something that we are supposed to uphold in our practice as professionals at all times. And while I agree that the premise as a Pilates instructor is that we never want to harm anybody, there's a question there um, that we're going to unpack hopefully in this conversation around what does the do no harm piece actually mean? As in, arguably, by being too conservative in your approach to do no harm, you can also inadvertently do harm to a client or a student. Um, and so that's where we want to start. All right. So there, are, I think that really comes in my mind to the concept of there are no solutions, only trade-offs, and every everything, every solution has a corresponding you know, drawback in some other area. So, uh, firstly, tell me, Kyle, are you a member of the PMA? Because I'd be surprised if you were. I am not a member of the PMA, and I'm very proud of it. Just because you use the the collective uh, pronoun we, um, you said. Uh, and so, well, I guess the first thing I want to say then is, and this is something that I think a lot of people mix up. I'm not I'm not suggesting you were mixing it up, but uh, I've seen a lot of people over the years mix this up, that the, the PMA, the same as in Australia, the Pilates um, uh, Alliance of Australasia, um, are private... Uh, organizations so they're they're membership based organizations and as such they don't have any legal mandate to require you know pilates instructors at large to do or not do anything um, they only have a mandate to uh, create rules for their members if you want to be a member of this club you must do these things and not do these other things. And so I think it's really important to point out, and I'm not suggesting that you were saying anything different, but just I think people do mix this up, that the PMA code of conduct, scope of practice, along with every other Pilates organization in the world, whether it's the Pilates Teachers Association in England or or whatever it might be, they are private organizations and all of their rules apply only to members. So if you're not a member, you don't have to do shit about what they say you should do or shouldn't do. I hear that. Um, but I'll throw another sort of thought in there in that when I was first coming up in Pilates land and I was really intertwined with Polestar, um, the PMA was first presented to me as a professional organization that was attempting to bring more professional standards into the Pilates industry with the idea that eventually Pilates was going to become something closer to a vocation 
uh, sort of similar to nursing or physical therapy. Um, and that because of that, we would eventually like this was the first step in taking um, making a move towards those types of professional standards, which I will note that in the medical profession, like you do have codes of conduct. So I don't know enough about it, but like, um, you know, if you're studying to be a physical therapist or a doctor, like you have a list of ethics that you are required by law to like abide by. And while what we do as Pilates instructors is arguably not that serious, um, I, my understanding of the PMA and why it was trying to be important, and this is not me defending them, I am not a member, but I like the idea of us being able to take Pilates seriously as a field and sort of in the academic sense. Um, and I think that that's my understanding is that that is what the PMA was originally trying to do. I don't think they've accomplished it. But that's to me what makes the conversation around the concept of do no harm. And if we are going to have a code of ethics or sort of standards for practice in our industry, that's what makes this conversation potentially interesting. So I guess then maybe sub question, as Pilates instructors, Pilates professionals, do we think of what we do as like a field? Like, do we want to take ourselves seriously <laughs> in the academic sense in the same way that other um, areas of study do? Mm. And uh, uh, yeah, at the at the at the risk of derailing this conversation into you know talking about professional standards and and professional bodies, uh, I think the the reason the PMA didn't succeed with that because the PAA here in Australia have tried to do the same thing for years and also haven't succeeded. And I've been on the inside of that uh, as a as a as a member of the PAA, uh, and also I'm an exercise physiologist here in Australia. I'm accredited by Exercise and Sports Science Australia. I have government healthcare numbers and all of the rest of it. And in Australia, if you want, if you uh, want to practice as a physiotherapist or a medical doctor or a chiropractor, like you said, you have to. There are legal mandates that say you must uh, comply with certain things. You must, you know go through a board exam, you must, you know, sign certain ethical statements, uphold, you know, et cetera. And these are all legal mandates. Like it's actually against the law not to do these things if you want to be a physiotherapist or whatever in Australia. Whereas if you want to be an exercise physiologist in Australia, there are no, none of those rules. So we have something in Australia called the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Authority or Registration Authority, APA, which if you want to be a physio or a chiro or a medical doctor, you have to register with that body and that's mandated by the government. Uh, but exercise physiologists who are also allied health professionals here in Australia, like we get equal kind of status in hospitals and, and everything as physical therapists, we don't have to register in that. And the reason for that is because exercise physiology is deemed as a low risk profession because we're not cracking people's necks uh, and we're not performing open heart surgery on people. Uh, and so basically like whatever we do, if we get it wrong, it's not going to be that much of a disaster <laughs> um, that, you know, it doesn't matter if we're kind of a bit crackpot and don't really know what we're doing. So it's not worth the red tape and the effort and the bureaucracy to enforce all of those things. I think that's the, that's kind of the, the logic behind that. And so I think it does. And given that exercise physiologists, our scope of practice is to work with people at high risk. So for instance, people who've had a recent heart attack or people, you know, like serious medical conditions. And so like there is actually genuine risk in some of those situations, and so given that the government in Australia considers EPs to be still such a low-risk profession, it doesn't surprise me at all that they see Pilates as like, you know, 
10 times less risky than that. <laughs> and I don't think there's a hope, a snowball's chance in hell of <laughs> Pilates ever being, you know, legally mandated to, you know, have certain standards. It's always going to be voluntary. Do, do, do you want to? Do you want to keep going down this track or do you want to get back to the actual topic we're here to talk about? No, we can go back to the actual topic, but um, I like that as a sub. I, I hear that. Um, there's a whole other question in there for me about, well, okay, I'm about to derail this conversation. But the so one of the things that we've also been talking about recently, and Adam McAtee just did a really funny post about this, um, about how Pilates manuals have no citations. And I think one of the things that we suffer from as a field in general um, is that we have a really hard time understanding what information, scientifically speaking, we should and shouldn't follow. And part of that comes from, I believe, a lack of overall scientific or scientific literacy as a field, meaning because of how we run our teacher training programs and because of how our, in quotes, governing bodies, the PMA, the PAA, govern themselves or the information that they disseminate to our industry as being important because because we don't have a more organized way of doing that um we're not from in the academic sense and this is my sort of education brain speaking we don't have any way of organizing how we get information or what is and isn't correct and i know that you and i have talked about this before raf in terms of like it's a free market and the best people will just distinguish themselves and everyone who's a consumer can like determine for themselves what is the best information for them. But then if we pull it back to the concept of like each, I believe every person in the Pilates industry as a professional is trying to do their best and genuinely wants to provide the best client-centered care and experience for their students, then it makes me feel like we do need a better way of organizing information. And the reason that we don't have citations that gives us access to better information is because we can't organize ourselves a little more formally in these institutions. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I used to be a PMA member up until recently and I have been getting, I was just becoming more and more disenchanted with the PMA until finally I decided to let my membership lapse. And I think it was actually something when I was thinking about it, Kyle, I reached out to you early on to say, you know, are, are you a member of PMA? Am I doing the right thing? Um, and one of the things that really frustrated me is that the PMA, um, in my understanding, the PMA was formed to try to legitimize Pilates as an industry, as a field. And I think the the intention was a, a good one. This was right. They, this happened right around the time of the lawsuit. So there was a big fracture in the Pilates community, and they wanted to get together and just get everybody networked and you know working together, uniting together. And I think that was a really good effort to do that. But it's like Kyle was saying: I have been a member of the PMA, and I have been on the inside trying to watch them create more legitimacy. And there is just very little scientific rigor. Um, I've had so many frustrations with that. They, they're, I don't know if it's just because they don't know what science actually is, but I think you've hit it on the head there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it, it got to the point where I became very uncomfortable because the trainings that they were providing, the, there's something called the research forum. I think it's still in existence. It's a yearly event. When I went to a research forum, they did present research, but it was really poor quality research, you know, where the the sample was four people 
and the scientist was a Pilates teacher, right? So you start with the conclusion and work back from there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they actually said, I remember being in this forum and they said, you know, we're having this research forum so that we can show the world that Pilates is a great thing. And I thought, I think Pilates is a great thing, but I don't think we're doing good science here, people. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's really interesting to me, this do no harm thing. And one thing that I found really interesting that it was the very first of the 14 points of the code of contact conduct. And then when I was looking, I just decided to just kind of look at other codes of conduct. So I, I looked at CrossFit. There's this one CrossFit gym and their first code of conduct for teachers is start class on time. <laughs> All right. <laughs> which I, which I just thought was so funny. You know, it's just like we as the Pilates industry, you know, I, when I say we as the Pilates industry, I'm like Kyle, I'm not a member of the PMA, but the PMA is the biggest body, the most vocal body in the United States. So, and there, I have friends who are part of the PMA. So I just consider us all to be part of the same, uh, pot of soup. And, um, you know, like, I feel like there is a reason why the, the do no harm is the first thing, because it seems to me like the insinuation is, you can do a lot of harm. <laughs> you have great power to do evil. <laughs> yeah, you can do a lot of harm. And so you need to keep that in check. Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing that I think that Kyle and I were talking about was just the irony in that when we think about do no harm, I, I assume with confidence that the Pilates industry is talking, the PMA is talking about physical harm, which is why there's a lot of focus on physical safety and having the proper number of training hours and having the right certification, all of those things. But, you know, there's, there's a flip side to that, which is your emotional well-being, which I think is harmed when we tell people that they are really fragile. So that's, that to me was, you know, that was something that Kyle and I talked a lot about is that what about what about your mental capacity? What about building the mental capacity? I think that just gets thrown completely out the window. And one of the things that I was thinking about was that it really just highlights the fact that the industry is still very focused on a biomedical model of, of pain and injury. And they're not looking at, you know, a more holistic biopsychosocial model. They're not there yet. So I found that to be really interesting. It's interesting. I, I think I agree that the psychology that you point out there that do no harm is number one. It's like, well, why not like get more people to do Pilates? Right. You know, <laughs> something like that. Like, Well, and to give you perspective, the Yoga Alliance, the Yoga Alliance, they do have do no harm and it's principle number five. What's number one in the Yoga Alliance? Breathe, look navel? Adhere to apl applicable law. Be a lawful citizen locally and federally. I mean, I don't know. Like, I just feel like it's like, do you really have to state that in your code of conduct? It's like, it's already a law, you know, <laughs> do we need to like tell people to abide by the law? Yeah. Yes, actually. Cause because Bikram yoga and did you watch the document? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. Did you watch the documentary on Bikram yoga? That's why. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I, I didn't see the documentary, but I've, I've, sort of seen the controversy sort of from a distance there and but uh, you know it's like all right well was he a member of the agro alliance and did signing that you know like if he's willing to break laws 
is the is the code of conduct of the Agro Alliance really going to be a meaningful impediment? Fair. No, because there's no one to enforce it. But it, I guess it's I guess it's like the honor system. Like we're, I don't know. It's the place. It's a place to start. Like sometimes you do have to state the obvious. I guess so. I mean, I think you know when I look down at this PMA uh, code of code of ethics and don't do no harm is number one. Well, you know, Nat, you said that you you sort of assume that they mean physical harm, but I, that's not the assumption that I made. Like when I read the rest of these, like they're you know avoiding appropriate physical conduct, financial exploitation, physical uh, sexual exploitation, client confidentiality. You know, so all of those things are opportunities to avoid doing harm to somebody that isn't necessarily physical harm. Uh, but it's like, all right, well, if they're saying do no harm and then they're also specifying like six different ways that you shouldn't do harm to people, it's like, well, how many layers of redundant instruction not to do harm, you know, do we need there? Um, Kyle, you know, what? how do you interpret that whole thing? I think I'm biased in my interpretation of this purely because of how I came to be familiar with it. And I always assumed that the do no harm was actually speaking to a, to like physical outcomes um purely because i trained with polestar and a big portion of polestar's thing is physical therapy or like they had a um brent anderson who is the founder ceo of polestar is a licensed physical therapist and a lot of their at least when i was with the organization continuing ed and um frameworks for working with people have to do with that idea um just seeing pilates as a link between physical therapy and helping people heal their bodies and providing positive movement experiences. And um, I don't, I know that Brent was involved in the PMA. I don't know the extent of it, but I know that I became aware of the PMA and its code of ethics because of my training through Polestar. So I always assumed that it was speaking to the physical capacity or like the way that you work with clients. Hmm. So what's the problem with do no harm then? I think that the issue is, and this is like a more, a larger industry culture issue. Um, and you've talked about this before on the podcast. You even have an episode actually from many moons ago, but I can't remember the guest where you talked about how, at what point do you know whether or not you should progress a client from all of the regressed exercises? Like if you're just doing like tail tucks and baby toe taps forever, like you are doing your client a disservice if you're never getting them to the point where they can hold a full body plank. Like, um, And so my interpretation or my beef with the do no harm and where I think we're getting it wrong as an industry right now is similar to what Nat said. I think we are starting with do no harm, which means we're starting from a place of fear, which means we're not starting from a place that gives people autonomy in their bodies or even empowers them to know that their body is not fragile and capable of many things. And we're teaching from the place of like, we don't want you to hurt yourself. There's so much like safety culture around teaching people in a way so that they don't get injured. And as Pilates Elephants has talked about many times, I think we're overly cautious in that regard. And I am trying to suggest that by being too conservative with the way that we give people access to Pilates, we are physically also, we are physically and emotionally harming them. And we are physically harming them because we're not 
giving them the opportunity to fully experience the capacity of their body. Like we aren't getting them stronger after a certain point and we are making them fearful of hurting themselves. And that goes against, I think, all of the things that most of us as professionals really actually want for our clients. Mm. So, you know, the do no harm, the injunction to do no harm, it does sort of imply, you know, do no active harm. So don't give someone an exercise that's going to hurt them sort of thing. Whereas it kind of, I think really, it it, do, it doesn't seem to encompass, like you say, the harm of omission. Whereas if, if we've got this person doing, you know, regressed toe taps and pelvic clocks after three years, it's like how much bone density and muscle mass could they have built in that time that might prevent a fatal fall 10 years down the line that we've actually sacrificed in the name of, you know, not over cooking their you know, pelvic stability or, or whatever it is that we're trying to protect. So there's a real trade-off there. And that gets back to that idea of there's no solutions, only trade-off. It's like, okay, we'll protect them from the harm of overexertion at the expense of increasing the risk of a fatal fall and a fracture and an infection in hospital and an early death, you know, down the track. So, um, so how do we balance that? Matt, do you think? Well, I mean, that's a that's a hard question. I find well, that's not a hard question for me because I feel like the body is anti fragile. But I think in, for the industry at large, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I was thinking about? I don't know how to balance it. We've talked about how to work with people so many times and pull out these elephants, but we're talking to an echo chamber. So when you say, how do we balance that? Like, I feel like you're saying, how do we fix the Pilates industry? And and that's too, that's too much for my brain. I don't know how to do that. I mean, everybody who is listening, I feel like we're just, we're just talking to an echo chamber. Um, I hope not. I hope that there are people who don't agree who are listening to this podcast. Um, I'm going to pass for a second (laughs) because I feel overwhelmed with this question. Why don't you answer it, Kyle or Raph? Well, when I was at, when I was in university, also you get this from reading the American College of Sports Medicine guidelines for exercise and testing, exercise testing and prescription, which are the current uh, guidelines. And we use them in our diploma and our clinical certification. Uh, Basically when I was in university, you know, what they drummed into us by just making us read, you know, research paper after research paper after research paper was that there is risk involved in anything. Going for a run, you increase your chance of having a heart attack, getting struck by a bus, falling over, getting heat stroke. You know, like there there are risks involved in exercising. You go to the gym, you might drop a weight on your foot, you might fall off the treadmill, you might pull a muscle. Like, you know, there are, you know, the your chance of doing all of those things is greater when you exercise and it's greater when you exercise more strenuously and it's greater when you exercise more often, right? So the more often and more strenuously you exercise, the more chance you're going to injure yourself during exercise. And the more often and more strenuously you exercise, the less your chance of you know, lifetime risk of heart attack, stroke, cardiovascular disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, dementia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, and the magnitude of risk for those much more serious things like heart attack, stroke, or cause mortality is multiple orders of magnitude bigger than the risk of, 
you know, having a heart attack whilst on the rowing machine at the gym sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, even for people who have had a previous heart attack, it's still, the risks of exercise are still much lower than the risks of not exercising. It's, I mean, this is, this is, was this, this was the topic of my master's degree that, you know, everyone should exercise everyone, you know, stage four cancer after your third heart attack, you know, like everyone should exercise um, because the risks of exercising are far outweighed by the risks of being sedentary. So it is true that we increase risk. And from, you know, if you look at the worldwide number of people who exercise, like every day someone drops dead of a heart attack at the age of 40, who is a fit marathon runner, they go for a run and they drop dead of a heart attack. But yeah, but what about the 50,000 people who go for a run every day who live a decade longer because they had a fitter, healthier, you know, cardiovascular system, et cetera. So I think, yeah, what we don't see are those invisible risks because when you drop a weight on your foot at the gym or you pull a muscle jumping up onto a box or whatever, you see that that's obvious, you know, like that's very visible. But when you die of a heart attack, you know, 10 years before your time because you were unfit, like, well, that is hard to kind of calculate in the moment in the in the class or, or whatever. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I think it's it's kind of the invisible, the invisible harm of not exercising, you know, unfortunately is, you know, multiple orders of magnitude worse and more likely than the, the more, much more visible harm of exercising. And that's why we fear plane flights more than driving, even though driving's like 500 times more risky like we feel totally safe in the car on the way to the airport, but we're worried as the plane takes off. It's like, no, now you can, now you should relax. <laughs> now you're in the plane. <laughs> now you're finally safe. <laughs> I was going to say, I think that, um, I don't think any Pilates teacher would disagree with what you just said. People need to move. And I think there, every person I've met in the Pilates industry would agree with that. People need to move more. I think maybe what the issue is and something Kyle touched on is that I think the problem with Pilates industry as a whole is just chronic underloading. That's what it, it's this chronic underloading. So people are moving. They're just doing pelvic clocks and toe taps pre Pilates. I think it's also fear. We have a, a fear of pain. Like we don't have a positive culture around understanding pain in Pilates, or at least I know that that's how I was brought up in Pilates land. Um, you know, there's a great sense and I, of feeling like if you're causing somebody pain, you're making their injury or their condition worse. And so we're always walking things back. And something that I know I have learned, and I'm very grateful to have learned um, working out in the gym is you're like, exercise is painful. Like when you're hitting muscular failure, it doesn't feel great, but it's the stress in a positive way. We just don't have a good association in Pilates land around what it means to positively stress your body. And I think because we, as an industry, don't understand that very well, we get very nervous about it. And so we always walk it back a little too far, which is like tying it back to, I think, Raph's original question of like, how do we fix this? Like that, it's a big question because we can't change the industry, the three of us in this room. And it does speak to a lot of conversations that we've already had, but that kind of indicates to me why I wish an organization like the PMA or the PAA had better scientific literacy, because then we could have access to actual pain science. And then we could actually implement that as a professional 
guideline or I don't know how it should be implemented, but more and more people would have access to it. So more teachers would be less afraid of hurting people because I think often when we make someone uncomfortable, we misinterpret that for being pain or bad. It's interesting what you say there because, um, you know, as I look at the PMA um, scope of practice here, which you sort of drew to my attention just before we started recording this, it's quite specific and prescriptive about activities that you can and can't do. Whereas if they, and I think to me that that is an indicator that they don't understand science, whoever wrote it, because if they did, it's like, well, you know, as an educator, one thing that I've realized at, you know, great expense by making the mistake many times is when you want to create a piece of content, you want it to be as evergreen as possible so you don't have to redo it in three months when something changes, right? And so, you know, as a PMA, if I'm making a scope of practice and I want it to still be like relevant, you know, in a couple of years, it shouldn't say specific things like you must not have more than seven people in the room when you're teaching Pilates. Instead, or, you know, it should say like something like, design and deliver Pilates programs in line with current, you know, national physical activity guidelines. Bam, evergreen, right? Like forevermore, whatever the current guidelines say released by the American College of Sports Medicine, that's what we do. And to me, it's like, well, that's, I I don't know what the American Medical Association, you know, scope of practice says, but I imagine it says abide by the current, you know, best practice as written in current clinical guidelines for whatever condition you're treating. Uh, it doesn't, I imagine it doesn't say in the American Medical Association, make sure you use this drug and don't use that drug and, you know, use this surgical technique or don't use that surgical technique. You know, it's probably much more general and timeless, I would imagine. I might be wrong. Any doctors in the audience, please <laughs> correct me if I'm if I'm off target. But yeah, it seems like it's just written like that. It's it's like, okay, that's what we, you know, we in inverted commas, the PMA, believed at the moment in time when this was constructed with the particular members who were on the committee and whatever the zeitgeist was in the world at that instant. Um, maybe there'd been something in the papers recently about someone doing something with a large class and like, oh no, we sh- now we should avoid large classes. So it's kind of, it strikes me as overly prescriptive and specific and not generic enough. Like it should just say, do A in, in line with guidelines, do B in line with guidelines, do C in line with guidelines, don't go outside the guidelines, the end of statement, you know. <laughs> what, what do you think about that? I think then we would have to have better guidelines, which is really the whole issue is that we don't have them and we we should. <laughs> well, I think I think we've got great guidelines. We've got the ACSM's guidelines and they, they tell us exactly what to do in terms of exercise, intensity, frequency, you know, duration, all of that stuff. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah. I thought you were talking about like the PMA's guidelines. Oh, no. But you were referencing actual standards for care. Okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think uh, like if I was writing the guide, if I was writing, you know, the PMA scope of practice, I would just say like design Pilates and deliver Pilates programs in line with current, you know, American College of Sports Medicine guidelines, like bam. And it's like, whatever the ACSM say, let's do that. You know, presumably they know what they're talking about, the ACSM, when it comes to exercise prescription. So. I don't think they mention any guidelines, do they? No, they don't. 
I like they they say guidelines, but they don't say which ones. So there's no direction. I don't I didn't learn about the ACSM guidelines and the ACOG guidelines until I got to breathe as a student. Right. Well, it says here number two. Uh, you know, recognize conditions that would preclude a client from safely participating in Pilates exercise program, according to which standard. You know. So it's like, well, who who's the arbiter of what precludes a client from safely participating in a Pilates exercise program? You know, so that's kind of a meaningless statement in my view because it doesn't say what the standard is for someone safely participating. You know, so I mean, okay, Mrs. Jones had sort of like a, a mild, you know, weird pain in her left forearm yesterday before class, and so you know, it is is it safe to <laughs> is she safe to participate? You know, like. Jenny's had three heart attacks, but she's stable and hasn't, you know, it's like, what's, where did, where's the line, you know? Um, and so it should be like recognized conditions that would preclude a client from safely participating in Pilates exercise program according to XYZ guideline, you know, um, based on current ACSM guidelines or, or whatever. So again, I think it's just like, it's kind of like at the same time, it's overly prescriptive and it's also overly vague. I think this is kind of driving us back to, or I'm realizing this, my original desire for the industry to just have more scientific literacy, because if we did, we could make that reference. And there's this idea that we don't have to reinvent the wheel as Pilates. Like I think sometimes in higher up Pilates land, there's a lot of stress or feelings of anxiety around how we legitimize ourselves. And the truth is that we're this tiny industry that exists as a subset of another larger industry. And there are people outside of our industry who've already done all this work. Like we don't need to write a meta-analysis or produce like a massive study about TA activation because somebody already did that and they already did the work. So we could just use that information. And I think that that's the part about do no harm and this whole concept in general that really frustrates me sometimes because I'm realizing now that I think maybe what it really is is just an overall lack of scientific literacy in our field, which makes us not have access to this information because otherwise it would be so simple to write guidelines that just say, okay, see ACOG, see, like, you know, um, somebody already figured that out who's actually a lot of people who are way smarter than all of us with many more brains and eyeballs on those pieces of information has already figured it out we don't have to invent anything right so it should just say like item three work with pregnant clients in line with ACOG guidelines bam like (laughs) easy ACOG's already done the heavy ACOG being the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists um and they've done the heavy lifting they've multiple people with PhDs sat in a room for three years and looked at all the research and come up with a set of recommendations about what is and isn't safe for women during pregnancy and postpartum. It's like, okay, great. Let's just use that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how do we in this little echo chamber of like 5,000 people a week who listen to this podcast, well, we've got 5,003 now, you know, the three of us. Um, Uh, how do we start, you know, the 5,003 of us, right? How do we start to shift the industry away from a fear-based default of like everything is a dangerous, it's, you know, humans are fragile, it's a big bad world out there, you know, the best thing we can do is wrap our clients in cotton wool and keep them doing pelvic clocks for three years. Yeah, how do we shift away from that and towards like actually 
yeah, you might pull a muscle. The chances of that increases if we get you up and doing some like more strenuous exercise, but actually the lifetime chance of you injuring yourself goes way down, you know, the more strenuously you exercise, obviously within reason. Um, but I, I don't think we're in any danger of going too far the other direction at this point um, in the players' world. So how do we start to shift the dial even a little bit in that direction? I like to take a grassroots approach. I'm from Kauai. We're all about, so is Kyle. <laughs> Everything is grassroots. I think uh, I think the easiest place to start is with your own teaching practice and really believing it. You know, having the confidence with science on your side that you can start to push your clients in ways that are appropriate, re- realizing that appropriate stress is really important for human um, thriving, right? So being able to incorporate that into your teaching practice means that you start to build that resilience and that kind of education with your clients. And then your clients tell their friends and more people show up at your class. And then maybe your studio manager starts to take notice. And I know for me, as much as possible, I try to talk to people anytime, any Pilates professional, movement professional that I can get my, (laughs) that'll listen to me. Um, If anyone ever reaches out to me for mentoring, I just do it in a heartbeat because I feel like this is one more person that I can try to pull into the dark side. The light side, the light side. <laughs> okay. Okay. The light side. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, You're the good guys here, don't forget. <laughs> yeah. I do like, I, it starts, it starts with my own personal practice and that's how it started for me. And then obviously continuing to have meaningful networks and conversations with people who are uh, like-minded, but also people who are not as much as possible. I think that really is because it is, it is really, it feels very good to be in the comfort of the echo chamber, but change doesn't happen as quickly as if you can start to reach out to people who do things a little bit differently. So that's, that's what I got. And, you know, I, I, it's not a super fair question for me because you and I, we all have platforms for this and we get to, we get to be with budding Pilates professionals right now. In fact, uh, one of the things that I'm practicing in this moment is talking to our students about what science actually means because at Breathe, we, there was a raft came upon a change when it came to external cueing. And we as a team pivoted and we're having to roll it out and I get to be a part of that. And I freaked out for about 10 minutes at like 1030 at night. I'm on my Slack saying, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I don't know what's what. And what I really needed was just the rest of my team to be like, it's all right. This is what we're going to say. And I'm like, okay, I'm good now. I know exactly what I want to say. And it felt so good to look at all of my students and say to them this week, raise your hand if you wanted to be an evidence-based Pilates teacher. And they raise their hand and I say, okay, this is the responsibility. There's a privilege and there's a responsibility. And the responsibility is science changes. And when science changes, we change. And it's a good thing. It's a really good thing. So yeah, I just keep talking is how I'm trying to change the industry and walking the walk. I think that's really important. Your clients need to see that you are not afraid to have them move their bodies. Because if you don't believe it and you're not if you're not proud of your own product, they can smell you a mile away and they're not going to believe it. So, yeah. 
Kyle, do you have any thoughts you'd like to add to that? Um, I think that was great. I agree with everything Natalie just said. Um, The only thing I would add is I do hold space in my heart for all of the people who have paved the way in the industry for us to arrive where we are now. And I know I want to acknowledge that it's a privilege to be able to bicker, discuss, challenge what is and isn't a better way for our field to move forward. And I say this as someone who lives in New York and as a result is positioned amongst many elders of the Pilates lineage and many people who feel really um, strongly about how Pilates should and shouldn't be taught. And I have taken Nat's approach. I have just started to word vomit all of the things that I've learned in the last few years and been really open about the fact that I have updated my own systems of belief. And I think that it's a professional, it's a mark of professionalism to be flexible enough in your thinking to update your beliefs when you get better information and to be able to be honest about that. And I really also am trying to walk that walk and talk that talk. Um, But to the people who are having a hard time with that or feel resistance towards these types of conversations, I also just want to acknowledge that when your entire identity is built around a very specific way of doing something and you feel like your entire business model is tied to that identity, it is very scary and it is really hard to change, which doesn't mean you shouldn't try anyway. But I just, I get, I'm just verbalizing, acknowledging that it's difficult. And I know that that's a part of this conversation too. Yeah, I think that's very true. Something that I'd like to add, because I agree with both of what you what you both just said is, is something like I'm sort of experiencing at the moment I'm going through is I've just started a couple of things have happened. We've, we've launched this mentor affiliate program. Um, and also sort of at the roundabout at the same time, I've started doing these kind of like sarcastic memes on, um, Instagram. And I don't know, like the, the sarcastic memes thing just kind of happened one day. I was just kind of like, didn't have time to do a full 10 slide carousel post with citations on every slide, which normally takes me like an hour and a half to put together. And I was like, oh, I'll just whack something out really quick. I'm like, okay, there's this thing that I just thought was a bit silly. So I'm, I made fun of it. There was some continuing ed ad or something like that. And so, and, and I got a really, really positive response, which surprised me. I thought it was just like a throwaway little thing. And so since then I've like done a whole bunch of been like doing a couple of days. It's quite amusing for me. And other people seem to find it amusing. And what I've found is, and I've been poking fun at all different aspects of Pilates. So contemporary, classical, fitness, you know, all of it. Um, and I've tried to be like without fear or favor, you know, equally sarcastic about all of it. Um, and what I've, what I've found is, is something very interesting that, you know, I've had a couple of people kind of push back and go, oh, you know, this is terrible. We shouldn't make fun of people, et cetera. And I've never made fun of any specific people in there, but, uh, you know, still a couple of people didn't really like the tone, but I've, I would say I've had like a hundred to one ratio of people going, this is awesome. I'm so glad someone's finally saying this, (laughs) you know, (laughs) this has bugged me for ages sort of thing. Um, and so that's been, that's been enlightening. Of course I'm in a bubble and the people who follow me are the people who like that sort of thing and whatever. Um, and I'm sure I've lost some followers. But overall, I've gained followers from doing it. So it's like, okay, however many I've lost, I've, I've gained more. Um, and then, so there's that. And then there's this second thing that's happened, which is this mentor affiliate program that we're running. And so we ran 
we 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 created an application for people who, who wanted to join the program, and we, one of the questions we asked was, "Why do you want to be a mentor affiliate with us?" And so I went through that and just and looked at everybody's answer and copied and pasted the sentences of what they'd written in there of like, you know, why the key things they wanted from the program. And there were things like, oh, they wanted to, you know, make more money and they wanted to run their business better and they wanted to get new, you know, high quality trainers for their studio and train them up. You know, they wanted a bunch of things. But the number one thing, like four times more commonly written than the second most popular thing was I want to align and contribute to Breathe's mission. That was the number one thing. I want to be part of this movement. And that so that was more important to them than any other thing. And and so what I and what I what I've seen on Instagram is those same people, you know, sharing and commenting and you know, putting in their stories and stuff, those posts that I make. And so I think that, you know, this is getting to the point finally that you know, we as I guess just, you know, to, to whatever tiny extent we are public figures, the three of us here and the likes of Adam McAtee and Heath Lander and you know, other others as well. We have this platform, like you say, Nat, and we can give voice to these things, which gives somebody out there who's you know, a Pilates instructor working from their spare room and they've got 97 followers on Instagram and half of them are their family or whatever it gives it gives them the ability to reshare something that we've said or endorse it or put a heart emoji on it or whatever and to thus make a statement about their position and their alignment you know with what they believe in that they wouldn't necessarily have either necessarily the courage or the 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 words to express otherwise and so i think that us sharing and just like literally having this conversation that we're having right now if somebody out there listens to this and goes, oh, you know, my friend Mary really needs to hear this or whatever, um, or even just giving it five stars on Apple Podcasts or whatever, I think that allows people to sort of be part of it and to, like you say, grassroots, to share it and endorse it. And yeah, so I, I've, I've, I've kind of reconceived my position as being like, oh, I actually have a responsibility now to be a voice for those people who are aligned with with the way that I think and to give them something that they can then share if they want to, that expresses what, what they believe, you know? And it's like, if, if I'm, if I don't have the courage to do that at the expense of maybe ruffling some feathers without going out of my way to ruffle feathers, but just, you know, when you say things that are true, sometimes people don't like it. Yeah. I think that me holding back because I have held back a lot because I didn't want to offend people it's like this idea of doing no harm right so me not wanting to offend people is actually probably causing some level of i'm going to say harm to the cause that i'm trying to promote and also to the people that also are already on board with it because they don't have doesn't give them ammunition or legitimacy like i can't tell you the number of times people dm me or slack me and say oh like oh i've got this client or this boss or this colleague who just doesn't believe that you know, neutral spines, not the be all and end all or whatever. And I just don't know what, I can't argue with them. I don't have the words, you know, it's like, I believe, but I don't, I don't have the words. So can you give me a post or a study or a video or something I can share with them? And so I think, yeah, like that's, that's something that's really valuable that we, as you know, when I put in, in quotes, you know, 
public figures um, can <laughs> can do. Hey, um, Kyle, I want to go back to something you said before, which was you said about we have this relationship with pain where we we kind of like we're fearful of pain or we have this kind of negative association with pain. We we want to avoid pain. And what I want to ask is, you know, to what extent, if at all, do you think that that is related to kind of like a lot of the way that Pilates is taught now is to, in my view, microscopically focus on body sensations and, you know, sort of the message of, you know, listen to your body, you know, listen, 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 listen to your body. And it's like, yeah, to, do you think those things are related? I am the most biased person you could possibly ask that question to because as a dancer, I spent like 15 years microscopically trying to understand every muscle fiber of my body and like really just your felt sense and all of the somatic stuff. So yes, I, I do think that that is partially where that comes from. Um, and I do something I've talked in relationship to that, something I've talked to a lot of instructors about who are very attached to that style of teaching, like really specific, like the types of people who are like, don't use your hip flexors when you bring your legs into tabletop, only use your abdominals, you know, all the the stuff we say. And it's amazing to me because like we know logically, mechanically, you cannot bring your legs into tabletop without using your hip flexors. And yet there. I've had this experience, other people have had it when cued or sort of your brain is cued so specifically that you feel like you are having the experience of only using your abdominals to hold your legs up in tabletop. And it's like, because you've connected to that sensation, it then validates that that's what you're doing, which means that when you can't find that sensation again, that you're doing it wrong. And I've, I've both experienced that, taught that way, and then watched other people teach that way. And I think that over arching kind of conversation around that that I've experienced is that people or Pilates instructors say it's like they're trying to teach people about their bodies. And that's really cool. And I do think that that's a really cool part of what we do is that sometimes there are people who are less embodied in their physical being. They are less aware of where their body is in space or what sensations they're having. But to teach them in quotes about their body by micromanaging their body, I don't think is the best way to do that. Um, but because it's our default setting for the most part in Pilates land, I think, and I don't know why it's our default setting, to be honest, because as far as I know, like Joe didn't teach that way. Kathy didn't teach that. I don't know any of the elders that taught that way. Um, because it's our sort of default setting, I think that's where that comes from and that we hide behind it as like false evidence or information about what clients are and aren't actually experiencing, which then gives us sort of like false information about pain or what is good or what is bad in terms of a movement outcome. Does that make sense? I want your help to understand this because there's something here that that just just doesn't compute in my brain. You know, so I've had this conversation uh, with dozens of Pilates instructors about, okay, yes, you can't flex your hip without using hip flexors. It's just not physically possible. Um, and I've had the most common response I've had is, yes, I know that, but the cue, use your abs to lift your leg is a useful cue because it helps people connect with their abs more, even though yes, technically it's the hip flexors doing the work, but it's like that it gets them able to experience their abs doing the work. Right. And I think, okay, well, 
I agree with that statement, but what I just don't comprehend at all is like, well, so why is that important? You know, like what is, what is the benefit to me of lying on my back and lifting my leg with my hip flexors, but feeling that I'm doing it in my abs? Like what's the rationale for that being a useful experience? Genuine question. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer, but my, I believe based on years of dance experience, I think that it comes from, or at least, yeah, in my learning experience, I think it comes from a a concept that we talk about in dance where you always want people to move from their center. So there's, um, I'm forgetting, there's a really well-known dance educator practitioner who like came up with a whole theory about this, which basically was that your limbs don't, your limbs move around your torso, but the initiation of the movement of your limbs comes from the center of your body and that your movement outcome looks different and you express your movement outcome differently when you're able to initiate it from your center, which I think maybe that's, well, I don't know. In my experience, I think that's maybe where that obsession of like moving from your abs comes from. It doesn't actually make sense biomechanically or like when you break it down from how the musculature of your body actually works. I think it's more of a, somebody had that idea and that experience and then started teaching that way and convinced everybody else that it was the truth. I feel like that was the Pilates principle. I mean, what you just described, you know, I didn't study dance in that way, but I feel like a lot of Pilates principle talk is around that, the idea of centering that all of movement starts from your center. Oh yeah, your powerhouse. Yeah, I think we just make a lot of shit up in the Pilates world. That's the truth. And if it sounds smart, then that's what we're going to say. I feel like that's that's what it boils down to. And, you know, going back to the the question, Raph, about the Pilates, the Pilates industry being uncomfortable with pain, I think it also stems from a lack of understanding about pain and injury. I agree. I'm going to push out onto a, a small branch here. Uh, and hopefully not, hopefully not fall to the ground twenty feet below. You know, to to what extent, Natalie? Because with your sociologist hat on, to what extent, if at all, do you think this is related to sort of a male female sort of information processing or, or prioritization thing? And so, you know, I'm just going on like my own personal observation of you know being a man and living with a woman who's my wife. Um, so I'm a sample size of one, but, um, I've noticed, yeah, my wife has friends that seem to be similar in this regard that happen to be women. And I also have friends that seem to be similar that happen to be men. It's like, okay, so the classic meme is, you know, man who's been visiting same church for 21 years, finally decides it's might be time to learn someone's name, you know, or like, you know, men who've been going to the gym together for a decade you know, don't know each other's family name or, you know, when, when I go to the, I go and hang out with my friend for an afternoon and I come back and my wife's like, oh, you saw so-and-so. I'm like, yep. And she's like, okay, what's happening with his wife? I'm like, I don't know. She's like, oh, how's his new job? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, she's like, (laughs) you know, it's like, she's like, well, what the heck did you talk about the whole time? I don't know. We talked about sports. We talked about, you know, (laughs) business, whatever, you know, so we, and, and when, when my wife goes out and sees a friend, I'm like, oh, how was so-and-so? And she's like, oh, well, her husband this and her daughter's that and the first day of school and she's worried about menopause and she's been on this diet and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, whoa, 
You know, <laughs> that's a lot of information. <laughs> and so, like, to I don't know to what extent that's really a, a true reflection of male and female behavior, but in my experience, it seems true. And so I wonder if, you know, to what extent, if at all, do you think that's because Pilates is almost all women these days, that there's a lot of kind of a lot more communication, a lot more detail, a lot more self-reflection and introspection and all of that. Whereas if it was mostly men, it would probably, I'm guessing, would be a lot less of those things. Do you think I'm wrong? No, I don't think you're wrong. I have just enough information or opinion that will make me very dangerous. Um, but I don't think you're wrong. I've been, I've been listening to a whole bunch of different podcasts about, um, all kinds of things. But one of the things that we're talking, they were talking about is like moral outrage. And I'm, I'm still with you, Raf. Just follow, <laughs> just stay with me. Okay. So yeah, the Pilates industry is mostly made up of women. And one of the things that I was thinking about with the whole idea of do no harm, which by the way, if we look at CrossFit, their first code of conduct is be on time, <laughs> which I just continue to find really entertaining. Uh, CrossFit mostly being dudes. Anyway. Um, and really jacked women. Yeah. Yes, that is true. That is true. When I think of do no harm, because I've been a part of the PMA and I've been a part of the American industry for long enough, it feels like a moral imperative. And therefore, if you are a, an instructor who's deemed as doing harm, you're seen as bad. Mm. You know, like you're being immoral, you're being unethical. It, to me, the whole idea of do no harm, whether or not people are even aware that it's part of the code of conduct, I think that idea lends itself really well to the Pilates police. People who feel a moral outrage and a moral imperative to be a holy crusader for making sure that we're not harming people to kind of go down a little bit on this rabbit hole. So I've been in touch with Hannah Teutcher, who is an amazing movement teacher and um, has a, an amazing podcast as well. I'm actually uh, going on her podcast tomorrow. I'm looking forward to chatting with her. Oh, that's so awesome. I, I'm going to be on in a couple weeks. That's awesome. Yeah. So. Um, one of the things that Hannah sent to me was this small video clip of a very famous soccer player doing hands and straps. So imagine being on the bed, hands and straps. I think he's got his knees tucked in to his chest and he's doing V arms, you know, like arms out to the side. And, and I believe he's also curled up. And she sent me this, this clip and I'm looking at it and I'm like, cool, good exercise, you know, cool. And it was like 25 seconds. And I'm like, why did you send this to me? I don't understand what's going on. Well, I was supposed to read the comments because in the comments, there was so much moral outrage about shame on the teacher who's having him do this exercise, like too many springs, really poor form. How dare they? Like just this moral outrage. Mm. And um, one of the things that I think is of a timely topic right now is the whole idea that there's a lot of moral outrage in the world. And it seems as though a lot of it does come from women, women shaming other women, women being very critical of other women. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't know that I think that that's necessarily true, but I find it to be an interesting observation. And it was just, 
you asked the question and I, I was listening to a whole bunch of podcasts about moral outrage and, you know, how things are right now in the real world. And, uh, yeah, that was something that came up was that they seem a lot of the like cancel culture stuff happens a lot with women online. Mm. Kyle, I want to go to you in a second, but first I just want to remark on something you said in the middle there, Natalie, which is, which really got me thinking about, you said basically, you know, this moral outrage and the, the do no harm and it's like, it's immoral to, you know, to, to do arms in straps with too many springs on. Um, and I thought, huh, so maybe the PMA scope there is, or, or code of conduct, they're not actually mandating. What they're doing is just reflecting the zeitgeist, right? So maybe the PMA is the tail, not the dog. And they're just a reflection of what's actually going on out there in the industry, because guess who the PMA is? It's just people in the industry who get together and and you know, voice their, their views and write them down on a piece of paper, and then they become codified. So anyway, I think that's an interesting thought. It's maybe it's like, yeah, the causation, maybe the causation goes the other way. Um, yeah. Kyle, what are your thoughts? That's a really interesting thought about the PMA, but I want to go back to something that Nat said about... Um, more, was it moral outrage or moral indignation? I don't know what the term is. And that it's coming mostly from women and I are, well, potentially coming a lot from women. And I, in that stream of thinking, I had also listened to a, a podcast recently. It might've been Ezra Klein. I can't remember exactly whose it was, but they were talking about the polarization of social media and how um, there's this really interesting trend happening right now because of all the things that are going on in the world where people will get on social media and they will yell at each other about how you are such a bad person because you believe this and you're showing that exercise with your hands and the straps and this person on these springs and like, how dare you? And then that person who posted the video will write back and be like, how dare you? Like you're harming your clients by not empowering them to do this. And anyways, the premise of the conversation was that when we argue like that on social media specifically, and we engage in cancel culture, we actually don't meet, um, research is showing that we don't move the needle forward, we actually just polarize even more, because the algorithm starts to feed you more of the content that you already believe. So by posting or fighting online with each other about the things that you think other people are doing that are wrong, you're not actually changing their opinion. Um, and so back to an earlier part of this conversation, where Nat had made the comment about like, grassroots, how do we how do we make change in the industry? Um, it really is person to person conversation, like having uncomfortable conversations with people in real time, be it on this podcast or out in the world in your studio, as an individual person, articulating to somebody why it is impossible to lift your legs without using your hip flexors and like allowing yourself to be uncomfortable in the conversation and allowing the other person who's receiving the information to push back and be uncomfortable in the conversation that is actually where change starts. It might not happen in that moment, but that's how you make people curious. And that the challenge with moral outrage or indignation, in my opinion, is that it starts to become a lot of posturing. Like it's all about trying to be on the right side because you, you're so afraid of how other people will see you and you need to be seen as good because good is correct. And if we can move away from that and allow ourselves to be a little more comfortable with being uncomfortable and think about things on a smaller scale, maybe person to person, studio to studio, education, educator to educator, that that's actually 
in the Pilates sensibility, a more effective way of making things better or at least pushing them forward. I, I've kind of got mixed thoughts, mixed feelings on that. Like I, I agree and I also disagree. I feel like absolutely, uh, you know, attaching, you know, moral violence to whether someone's doing arms in straps with the right number of springs is just, it's not a constructive and useful thing to do. So I think absolutely, and that applies both ways, right? So if you're, if you're a, a, a of a fearless movement advocate and movement optimist, and you think that those people who are queuing, you know, transverse abdominis are, you know, bad people, then that's the same thing. You know, I think we we should attack bad ideas, not not attack the people, you know, who currently hold those ideas. Um, so I'm with you a hundred percent on that. But at the same time, I see the value, and this kind of, you know, going back to what I was saying before about the, the sarcastic memes and things, like of someone like, for example, Adam Meekins, who, who is a physio I've had on this podcast, uh, who shares like scathing critiques of people doing stupid, nonsensical things in the physiotherapy space. Like he's just, I mean, he's sarcastic times a thousand, you know. <laughs> He's borderline bullying sometimes. Yeah. So, he, I mean, he's he's got a – he had T-shirts made called uh, Manual Therapy is Bullshit or something like that. Um, you know, so, now, I'm not I, – I have mixed feelings about his approach as well, but something I've I've observed is in in my own experience with working with Pilates instructors is, is, you know, the number one thing people say to me about this podcast is, thank God someone finally said it. I've been thinking this these things for years and I thought I was the weirdo and nobody else agreed with me and I was the only one in the world who had these thoughts and now I know I'm not the only one and that emboldens me to have these conversations with other people knowing that I'm not going to be, you know, dragged off by the secret police at three in the morning, you know, for thinking these heretical thoughts that maybe posture analysis isn't, you know, necessary in a Pilates assessment session or whatever. So I think there's, there's a, pl- and, and also just like normalizing having different, I guess it is just normalizing having a different view. And I think that, yeah, so I can see a place for the satire and the, you know, critiquing at, and at the same time, I think I agree with you that we shouldn't, you know, I think it's it's absolutely a regression and it's only going to make things worse if we think, if we attach a moral value to someone on the other side or our side, either positive or negative, right? And so if, if I can know one thing about somebody, like if I can know like your views on posture analysis and from that I can deduce your views on like every other thing every other issue, well, that tells me that you're, you haven't really thought about things for yourself. You've just kind of adopted the sweet, you know, the package of beliefs that are appropriate for this particular tribe, you know, and, and, and you don't have, you know, like you haven't gone a la carte (laughs) really. So, yeah. So I think we shouldn't, like, I'm all for people having a tribe, but I, I, it's really hard. I mean, it's, you know, I feel quite conflicted about all three of those things. You know, Nat, can you help me disentangle that? Help me, Nat, you're my only hope. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm going to change the subject. I when when you started putting out those memes, I looked at my husband. And I was like, "What has gotten into Raph? <laughs> like, what is happening?" I like them. I think they're funny. And one of the things that I think you've always done really well, you and the Breathe team, now me and the Breathe team, is the space that we provide is a brave space. And I that to me is like one of the most important qualities of 
of you and and the space is that you are not afraid to talk about hard things and controversial things and standing up for what is right. And I think um, some people will see it as being disruptive, but what I see it as just being brave and having honest conversations and being willing to be really vulnerable about something that could possibly cancel you or at least put you in a spot for attack <laughs> by the Pilates police. I, I think, you know, I'm, I think there's a middle ground with having a tribe of people that you, that really love and support you and pump your tires. And then also having space, making space for tough conversations with people you don't necessarily see eye to eye on. And I also think this is something that Adam McAtee and I were talking about too. There's also a space to call out bullies. Um, not talking about Adam Meekins, I'm talking about bullies in the Pilates world and just being able to stand up and just say, I don't like your tone. I don't like what you stand for. Cut it out. <laughs> um, so I think that, I think that there's a, a wide spectrum of choice when it comes to how you want to be. And you don't have to just be all kumbaya. And you also don't have to be like super rigid. And that's the other thing I really like about your funny onion. Do you know the onion? Is there the onion in Australia? Mm -hmm. I only know about the onion because of my husband. Um, Cause you know, I grew up on Kauai where like we had nothing. We had one store. <laughs> just spam and surfing. That's it. Yeah. And ukulele. Exactly. Uh, one thing that I really appreciate about your memes is that you're trying to make light of really, it's just movement people. We're not flying airplanes and we're not doing open heart surgery. We're doing weird shit on a mat <laughs> and, and a reformer. In fact, this is kind of funny. So um, this week at Breathe School, it's um, demo prac week. And one of the exercises, two of the exercises that I find really funny are swan dive and rocker with open legs. And I only had eight people in class today, so they only really needed to do two reps. But I was like, can you just go a little bit longer? Because I just want to watch you do these exercises because they're so weird. Anyway, that's what I appreciate about those memes, Raph, is just that there's for a good laugh. We need to laugh at ourselves a little bit more. Well, it's funny. Like, I just, I've observed, like, I watch a lot of stand-up comedy on YouTube, and I've observed that I'm sure there's an immense skill in, in being a stand-up comic and I don't possess any of it, but a lot of what they do is just say things that are true, but no one actually says it because it's kind of awkward. And then that's hilarious. you know. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's what I'm trying to do in those, in those moves. Same thing, say things that are true, but no one says it because it's awkward. I would also add that, I mean, I, I've really enjoyed the memes as well and find them hilarious. I think humor is a great way to get people talking about things and also to deliver information in a lighthearted way. Um, but also, I think everything we see on the internet should always be taken with a grain of salt. Um, I love the internet. I think the internet is amazing. I love living in a time where the internet is such a big part of our lives. And as the youngest person on this podcast, I can say that I'm not a digital native, but I feel like one. And um, it can be a really fun place. And it can also be a really mean place. And I think that it can be a place where it, that polarizes really quickly. And so just in general, anything that you see, especially in the social media space should be taken with a grain of salt, like take it at face value, but also know that there's, it's a, it's a short 
format communication platform. So like no deep, well, very few deep, real conversations are happening on Instagram or TikTok or YouTube. I mean, sometimes, but not very often. Let me just, I know this is going, this is, we're now at an hour and a quarter, but like, like I'm, I'm still, I feel like we're not quite done yet. You know, back to this no harm, you know, do no harm thing that, all right, so we, we have this now quandary as sort of a meta quandary. So, all right, so if someone's on social media saying something wrong that you deem to be harmful to people, right, is it your job to correct that? And if in correcting that you harm them because they become offended, it's like, okay, well, how do you quantify that in into the equation? You know, and so, so all right, so because I've had people kind of tell me off for, you know, like I did a meme that said, you know, 100,000 Pilates instructors die every day because uh, they didn't keep neutral spine, you know. That was my favorite one. <laughs> and and I got one or two DM, you know, respectful, but kind of chastising DMs about this going like enough with the sarcastic shaming, like it's not funny, you know, et cetera. And I respect people's, you know, view to on that. I'm like, fine, but, you know, feel free not to follow me um, if you don't enjoy my posts. and. But so I, I just think like, all right, well, you know, if to what extent, well, I, I think there is harm, like you said right at the start, Kyle, in, in spreading the belief that you have to be in neutral spine at all times, otherwise you'll explode, right? I think that's harmful, right? So I'm saving people in my view by, you know, making fun of that and saying like, hey, people, it's like, it's okay, you can, you can bend, it's, you know, the world's not going to end. Um, but at the same time, some people got their knickers in a twist, not many, most people found it hilarious, but you know, all right. So I, I, it's sort of like the trolley problem, right? You know, do you, do you divert the trolley to, you know, kill the one person to save five people or is, is it always wrong to kill somebody no matter, even if you're saving five people in the, in the process. And I don't think I killed anybody by making a sarcastic post about neutral spine, but yeah. What do you think the answer is? Well, I'm biased on this as well. I recently just had a really long, big Instagram. It wasn't an argument, but Adam McAtee and I kind of double teamed and went back and forth with uh, somebody on Instagram about a post that they had made, which was like fear mongering people into teaching anything that wasn't classical Pilates. Um, and we engaged in good faith and it was like a, you know, paragraphs of response. And I don't believe that Adam or I changed her mind. But to your point, I felt like it was important for Adam and I to publicly say what we did to her in the comments. And I believe Adam did this as well. And I very consciously was, I tried to be compassionate and kind, but also correct in what I was saying, meaning like we were, we weren't referencing science specifically, but just pointing out the flaws in her, in this person's argument about why you can do more than classical Pilates and that while it is wonderful to love classical Pilates, you don't have to demonize people who are not teaching classical Pilates. Um, And so all of that stuff is publicly on the internet now. And one of the things that I was thinking about when I was engaging in that exchange is that to the point that Nat made earlier about grassroots, I don't think I changed the person that I was arguing with's opinion. However, there have been over 14 or 15 different likes at this point on all the different comments that Adam and I made to this person that we were talking to in the Instagram comments, which means that other people are reading the exchange, which means it's giving a lot of other people food for thought. And so I think that that is valuable. 
and good and totally fine. And I think that that's how the internet should be used as a tool. Um, but it's really hard to do that without being nasty to people. <laughs> like it's really hard to do that and hold the space of like, okay, we are going to agree to disagree. I'm going to share my view and point out what I think the flaws in your argument are. And then you're going to write me back and we're going to have this back and forth. But to, to do that without telling person, without delineating whether or not a person is morally good or bad is really hard. And I think that that's our challenge is it's totally fine to do those things and you should keep making those memes um, and people can keep telling you that they don't like them and then that's fine. Like the internet's a public space. We can all share our feelings. But if you are someone who's doing that and you are engaging in those back and forth to do it from a place of professionalism and compassion, which to me means not canceling people, like engaging in a good faith argument, thinking about your words, um, and understanding that your words have impact and also being willing to walk away when you don't change the person's mind because you can't change all the minds on the internet. Right. Anything to add, Matt? Oh, I feel like I'm going to, yeah, I agree with, I agree with Kyle. And I think in this particular situation with the memes, with your memes, so your memes are just kind of poking fun at the Pilates industry in this particular situation. I don't, Think, I think there's a big difference between being offended and being harmed. There are other situations where words really do have massive impact. Like we look at the fallout of the university professors at, uh, in the U.S. Congress who, you know, were being asked questions about hate speech. That's a totally different story. We're, you know, in the particular situation of these funny memes, being offended is not the same thing as being harmed. This is just a funny meme. I don't advocate genocide, just for the record. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's that's what it is. I think that people are very, there are a lot of people who are easily offended about everything and they mistaken that for trauma and harm. Um, and maybe this is what's going to get me canceled finally. <laughs> But again, I want to be very clear. We're talking about Raph's memes, his funny, harmless memes on Instagram. If you want to cancel someone, cancel me. <laughs> I don't think any of our listeners are that fragile, easily offended, because I think all of the ones who were like tuned out years ago. Yeah, they stopped following you. Yeah. After the first after the first offensive carousel that you put out in July 2021. Yeah. Shh, why do you have to keep calling attention to it now? <laughs> No, I think it's good. I, I will say, Kyle, that um, because I did, I did read through the the comments of this particular post that you're talking about. I think, um, well, Adam, you and Adam both did a really good job, just continuing to engage in a way. I felt like there was a lot of straw manning, and I think that you did a really nice job. Just every time I would read a comment, I'm like, Kyle, she's so good, she's so good. <laughs> You did a great job. I'll have to go and read it. I haven't, I haven't read it. Maybe uh, Nat or Kyle, you can just DM me the, the the link or whatever. But I guess I feel like you know, and this, I think this is really just a matter of personal preference. And there's a spectrum of things that can all be, you know, useful and effective here. But I feel like, and I, so I haven't read any of your conversations. So I'm, I don't know what what was involved, but. A lot of the times, I mean, and I kind of used to feel like I needed to in those types of conversations sort of be the quote adult in the room and sort of like, you know, keep my temper and not 
do ad hominem attacks and not take it personally and all of that stuff uh, and be eminently reasonable and ask questions and all that when this person on the other end of the internet is like, you know, typing at me in all caps and calling me all kinds of names, <laughs> whatever. Um, and where I've now kind of changed my view that I, I still agree firmly with you, Kyle, that we shouldn't attack the person. Um, but I think when somebody's behaving ridiculously, it's fine to ridicule them and draw attention to that. And that that's my personal, you know, approach now. Um, and I think there's, there's degrees of ridicule. There's like gentle joshing at one end and there's like the extreme sarcasm at the other end, you know? Um, but I, I, and I think it also, it really depends on the tone in which somebody responds to me. Like if they're kind of, respectful respectfully disagreeing it's like well i'll respond in a respectfully disagreeing way as well but if they're kind of like super passive aggressive or just aggressive aggressive then i don't see any problem being you know sort of parodying that you know this the silliness of what they're saying yeah don't please don't misunderstand me some people on the internet are belligerent and if they're being belligerent you should respond to them in I'd like they're being belligerent. But um, I think if someone is in good faith trying to go back and forth with you, um, or I don't know, my tactic is always to try and approach from a place of compassion and understanding while also trying to communicate what I see as like a point or a truth um, with the understanding that, you know, I'm not necessarily going to change their mind. And sometimes I'll also add, I think that in these types of conversations, um, social media specifically, which is what we're discussing. It's, it's nice if you as the participant, so like me as the person responding to this other person's comments, like be open to also having them change your mind, even though you know what you think is true. I think it's important to also name that in the same way that you're hoping to teach them something, they may also be able to teach you something too. Not always, but sometimes. Agreed. Agreed. Good talk. Good talk. Good talk. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. 
This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.